You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Steve Klabnik, who has the unusual distinction of having been a major contributor to Ruby on Rails, and then later to Rust, and who now works at Oxide on building an operating system from scratch. We talk about his experiences with all these different projects, among several other topics. And now, Scratch Building an Operating System. All right, Steve, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you are the only person I know who has worked on like really high-level web development, like being a back-end Ruby developer for years, and is now working on building a from-scratch operating system, like not just as a toy hobby project, but like as your job for real, that's going to get like, you know, people are going to pay money for, I don't know if uh, the operating system itself is free or, or if it's proprietary, but then or people pay for the hardware, but you're working on an operating system and that's wild and like very different from, I assume, backend web development, having not worked on an operating system, I can guess. So I'm really curious, like, what's it like? What's the, what are the, like the most surprising differences or maybe unsurprising also um, between working on an OS from scratch and like backend Ruby web development? Yeah. So what's kind of funny is we initially started talking when I was doing that Ruby stuff. And that's also true with many people in the industry. But like, I learned C as my second programming language ever. So like, I actually like originally was doing more stuff like that. And then kind of got into the Ruby and web dev stuff because it was like exciting. And because there was like a lot of jobs and like a market for it and doing that kind of thing. So from my Uh perspective, it's been very much like a back and forth kind of like over a very long time sort of thing. But it's like funny because I'll read comments on the Orange website back in the day of like when we were doing Rust stuff of people like, oh, this is run by web developers who have no idea how to like what a pointer actually is. And it's like, (laughs) man, like I wrote, I started writing C 20 years before now. So like you can, you can calm down. So there's a little bit of that going on, but also like, you're not wrong. They're like very different things and that's cool. I think, so like part of it, part of it for me too, is like professionally as time goes on, like, so I, I basically had dropped out of school to do a startup, I spent all my investors money and didn't succeed because 3d printing was something nobody ever heard of in 2009. So it was like way too, way too early, went back to school and finished and then ended up like getting an internship. Uh, well, internship happened before the startup doesn't matter. Whatever the point is, is like I was doing web dev stuff for that. Like I wrote a rails app for that startup. And so uh, I, I started off working in like a specific and actually had a C extension too, uh, which is also like, I guess some amount of foreshadowing because with 3d printing, they're like files that are in this STL format, or at least they were at the time. And like, there's a C library for doing that. So I like smashed that library into Ruby to like do, you know, in a background job to do processing on like the models and stuff. So that was like, it was a specific application. And then I got like, as I got more into open source and like working on that kind of stuff, it was like, oh, if I like work on Rails, it's kind of like I'm working on every single Rails application, which means (laughs) that like I have like a bigger impact. And that's like interesting to me because I've always wanted to like, do things that like help the world be a better place and like, you know, do bigger, bigger, bigger stuff. And so I kind of saw this natural progression from like building a Rails app to working on Rails as like this kind of thing. And that's when I started like, you know, getting more involved in like reading Ruby source code. And I was like, well, if I work on Ruby, not only am I working on every Rails app, but I'm working on like every program in like the Ruby programming language. And so that also drove a little bit of my interest in doing that. I actually had structured my college classes to get to compilers as quickly as possible. I'd always like wanted to do language stuff and I was really interested in that, like in late high school, early college, but it was not very clear at the time that you could ever get a job doing that work. And so I kind of like didn't, I sort of like stayed around from it. And in a similar kind of like 
foreshadowing sense. A lot of my friends went on to get like operating systems PhDs or like graduate level work. And like we actually were building an OS together in college uh, in the programming language back then. And so I kind of like went from hobby OS development to doing Rails apps. And then from finally to like Rails apps to like programming languages and then working on Rust and now doing this OS and Rust, which is called Hubris, by the way, if people don't know, um, Oxide's like legal OS we're working on. And uh, to sort of answer the question you didn't really have a question about though in the middle is like all the code for the Oxide rack is going to be like open source. So like it is true that like anybody can read it. In fact, Hubris is currently like on GitHub. You can go read it. It's MPL licensed. Oh you're largely paying for hardware when you're buying Oxide stuff, but it's you're paying for the integration of both of them, but like you're not, the software itself is not the secret. It's a secret sauce in the sense that that's like what makes it a pleasant developer experience, but it's not secret sauce in the sense of like, you can't read our source code because there's secrets in there that you're paying for or whatever. Right, right, right. And it's also important for like security and a whole bunch of other like shenanigans like that is also kind of why stuff is open is like, we really believe that people should know what code is running on their computers. Uh, and it turns out that's actually like really difficult in basically every computer that exists because yeah. people keep hiding more CPUs and more things and little OSs in more places. <laughs> and so you just like don't even realize that that's like happening. This seems like an extremely, you know, like an extremely reasonable to me, like business model. Um, but yes. I can imagine like a lot of old school people being like, how can you spend all this time writing all this software and then not charge anyone for it? And it's like, well, okay, but in order to use it usefully, you need to be running on pretty specific hardware, I'm guessing. And then, you know, it's like, oh, well, yes, but now anyone could take that and, and put it on, you know, this very specific hardware. It's like, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> that's definitely <laughs> like, yeah, that's definitely part of it. And it's also like one of the things we've struggled with, we spent a lot of time before we open source Hubris thinking about the readme and the contributing.md because we, as a startup, we don't have time to like manage a community and the right. goal is not to like make it a reusable component, not because that's like a, a bad thing for business or something. It's just like, we're still pre-revenue. So like we got to focus on getting paid and like shipping product. And so we had to very carefully be like, we would love contributions, but don't get mad at us if we just literally never answer your PR. Cause like, that's yeah. just like the way that it goes sometimes. Or like, you know, we'd, we'd love to see people port it to new platforms, but we're not going to merge that support into the upstream tree unless it doesn't like weigh down our ability to like build the product we're trying to build. And so that's like a tricky thing. Thinking about that and setting expectations. Cause that, that would be like a, a definitely a concern that I would have if I were <laughs> working on that project is just like, yeah, I mean, somebody made the joke once that like open source contributions are free as in puppy. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, somebody did work, but like you also have to do work to get it integrated. And then also like if people start relying on it, then they expect support from it, which defaults to you if that person who originally made the contribution, you know, walks away. So yeah, that's smart. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, there's like a fine line there between those things. And so we're just like, you know, just being straightforward and honest and upfront about our intentions is like the the only thing we can possibly do. And so it's worked out really well so far. We've had some people send in PRs that are good and got merged. And we've had people send in PRs that are good, but we couldn't merge them for whatever reason. And that's, yeah. you know, just like how it goes. Um, so there's definitely, it's a fine line. Um, but yeah. it's definitely really cool to see people play around and do it with like stuff we didn't originally anticipate or like porting it to other architectures, like doing all that kind of stuff. By the way, I can't believe that this is somehow not your first rodeo at building an operating system from scratch in not C or C++. 
That's <laughs> yeah. So it's also technically my third because I had a hobby OS in Rust I was working on, but it wasn't super far enough long. But yes, it's it's definitely history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, right? So it's like yeah, kind it's of fair, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of similar stuff. Um, so how does this compare to your past two efforts? I mean, the, those two were obviously like not as big of a commitment for you. So I think there's like two, there's many major ways of looking at it, but I would say one is, uh, there's two important ones. The first one is like, I designed the first two, but I did not design this one. This was like a pre-existing project when I joined Oxide and a lot of the like design work had already been done. And so, you know, I'm like, obviously like talking with the team and like working on part of that, but like, it's not like my OS, whereas the first two were very much like my thing, or at least like me and my friends building a thing and so that's i think is important too is like while i talk about all this stuff like please don't think that you know my coworkers do a majority of the work honestly so like i also want to make yeah. sure you know i don't talk about it as though it's like my project this credit is important secondly the a big difference is that the first two were deliberately for x86 64 and mm. were like this is for embedded devices, so like primarily ARM uh, microcontrollers. And originally, we we're going to do Risk Five, but aren't doing that for Oxide anymore. But there's also some people that had, that had like ported it over because we designed it to be easily portable to Risk Five as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, so the, the kind of the scope is very different uh, in terms of like what they are intended to be used for, and then that also leads to like design things that I can talk about about why they're different too. But um, yeah, that was like kind of the biggest thing is like, I wouldn't say desktop or server. Like, I don't know. We never really got a full environment going on either of those previous two. I mean, we had like, we had like a shell and you could run programs on the one I did in college. And I almost got to that point with the one that I was doing in my hobby place. But it's like, it's, it's like talking about it as a desktop OS is kind of ridiculous when it's like, you can type LS and like, maybe we'll do a file system sometime soon. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. But like, but like in terms of the like hardware you're supporting, you know, building something for x86-64 is very different than like for a microcontroller. Um, so yeah. Okay, so now I'm curious. You said you said microcontroller. It was like the original motivation. I actually assumed, apparently incorrectly, that the the goal was to make a new OS for people to actually run like applicate like server ah, applications on. Okay. Yes. So that is a good point. That is not the case. That's a good misconception <laughs> to like clear up. Yeah. So this is also something I didn't really like appreciate about stuff at Oxide at first until I actually had like taken the Cloudflare job is like, I actually didn't know very much about like server grade hardware or like how servers are different than like desktops. Cause you're like, you know, you got like a fast CPU and a lot of Ram and that's what you want in both. So like, I don't really like, you know, I've never like been super forced to engage with that like problem. Um, sure. And then Cloudflare builds all their servers and does all the management of their own hardware and stuff. And so for the most part, and so like, once I got to like read the you know blog post that team put out about like this is why we're doing these things and learn a little more about that, I like kind of appreciated some of the differences. And mm. and so part of those differences is that like server grade hardware includes a lot of additional computers inside the computer. Because like think about it this way, like if my browser window crashes right now while we're recording this, like the OS will handle it. But if it like causes a hard enough fault that it like crashes Windows, then like my whole computer is gonna like turn off. And that's right. like fine because I'm the only one using this computer. But if yeah. I'm like running a workload with like a whole bunch of other people's stuff on it, like I don't want, say, the ability of a user program to crash my desktop so hard, my server so hard that like the fans don't work anymore. Cause like you don't want to break the hardware, right? So like server grade hardware has like additional chips in it whose jobs are to like manage that kind of stuff, like manage the power and manage the networking and manage the 
like power and networking and like fans and cooling and like stuff like that. So that oh. way the CPUs that are actually running user jobs don't have to like worry about doing that kind of work. You know, you can put the full weight of the CPU into running the user's jobs. And then that's also like a nice, you know, like sort of like boundary for system failure in that like you could totally you could totally turn off the CPU that's running people's jobs, but the computer would still be like functioning and could like bring itself back up. So like, you know, imagine that you've gotten something so bad that you do crash the entire, you know, set of CPUs that are, I'm talking about it's like one, but I think there's like a thousand twenty-four or something in the rack. Like it's like a lot of CPUs. <laughs> right. But like the point is, you know, you're just like you're trying to manage all this stuff. And so you have an additional layer of software and hardware that's like managing the whole thing as opposed to just purely running user programs. So this OS is being used in the chips that we do for that work. And so you, as like a user of Oxide, it's kind of very much like a DigitalOcean style. Like you pick an image, you boot it up as a VM, and then you can do whatever you want in it. So that stuff is actually being still run through Illumos and Beehive, which if you are not familiar with, is kind of like saying Linux plus KVM, unless you're a super big fan of Sun stuff, in which case you'd be like, how dare you compare this beautiful thing to like, you know, that stuff, but like the same sort of idea. So like, those are like, we have a full like Unix running that's able to run containers and that's what's running users workloads. And so they're using whatever OS they want inside of those con- like containers, basically. Got it. Yeah. Like, um, software crashing so hard that it like makes the fans stop and like causes damage to the hardware is not something I would have guessed comes up. Like it just would not have occurred to me. And like, to be clear, that's like not the case in a desktop either. Right. Like it's not like we hear stories about people's computers breaking, but just like why that doesn't happen is you want to isolate different domains into their own, you know, separate groups so that failure doesn't cascade across the system or whatever. Yeah. But I, I have to imagine that there are some horror stories somewhere about like because because it, it nobody sets out to be like okay let's let's just go out of our way to like make put microcontrollers in our hardware and like maybe even write a custom os for them that's like something that you only come to after you're like actually there's enough of a like problem space here that this seems like a reasonable solution <laughs> to like yeah. real problems well it's also tricky because like so uh i'm kind of hand waving around the uh the name so the the common name for a lot of this stuff is the bmc or the baseboard management controller and so we are not doing that but we're doing the same thing but we call it the service processor and it's we're calling it something different because there are layers upon layers upon layers of standardization is maybe a bit strong, but let's say like agreed upon interfaces for managing this kinds of stuff because most computers are built by like the person who built the motherboard is not the person who built the CPU is not the person who built the RAM is not the person who, you know, built the mother, the motherboard itself and like all this other stuff. And so they need interfaces to like talk to each other. And so there's kind of semi-standard ones, but this leads to like other features too, where like, if you want to be able to like say, you know, drop into like manage the rack from outside, you would usually use a BMC and some sort of like protocol to sort of like SSH in conceptually anyway, uh, <laughs> to, and then be able to mess around with like, you know, that kind of like control interface. And so there's like a whole host of just like stuff in there. And it is like layers upon layers and upon layers of things. And there's a lot going on and there's a lot of things there. And what that means is like, possibility for stuff to break like the more moving parts are in the system the more likely that something is going to like go wrong somewhere and then also attack surface area for bad actors so like from a security perspective the more 
things that you have going on and the more different interfaces you're trying to line up against each other, the more chance you're going to find a crack somewhere to like cause problems. And so while we're doing the same conceptual tasks, we're like throwing away all of that compatibility since we're building everything like integrated custom to each other. We don't have to worry about like, how is our motherboard manufacturer going to be able to implement the thing that makes this work? Because like we're, see, we're yeah. all those entities at once. And so that, that means we have a radically simpler system that does the sort of same type of tasks, but without it being nearly as like bloated and complex. And also all that stuff is usually like super hyper proprietary uh, as well. So like that's also having that be open source is like also a selling point to customers. Be like, you can know that our code is not secretly spying on your applications and sending it off somewhere. Cause like, you know, the code, cause like you have it. That's a, like a very rough overview. Like I said, I'm like new to this stuff and my coworkers are much smarter than me. And so I probably like said something slightly wrong in there, but like, it's been nice to like, I'm not going to say like I'm a junior at Oxide because that's not true, but like everybody brings different strengths because we're so full stack, you know, from like building our own hardware the whole way up to like the front end of the website. Like we are truly full stack in every sense of the word. And so my expertise is like in Rust and like that kind of thing. And my embedded stuff is like much newer. Like I'm new to that space. And so I've learned a lot from my coworkers who are super smart and have been doing this for like a very long time. I mean, you did literally write the book on Rust, co-write the yeah. book on I mean, <laughs> the book that everybody reads, which, by the way, I really enjoyed. That was how I got Thank into you. Rust, awesome. reading that book. So thanks for writing it. I'm really curious about, you, so you mentioned security stuff. Something that I learned recently is that something that can happen to virtual machines is that someone manages to successfully convince the VM to install malware into the firmware, which means that it survives like a VM wipe. I like the software level, unless you happen to have one of these like providers who actually goes around and does like hardware resets of the firmware. Like if you are renting a, an entire instance from somebody and then later on they're renting it to somebody else, they will actually go in between changing those over, like do a hardware wipe. And obviously that's like expensive to automate by default because it's hardware. Totally. It's not, you know, you can't just like send a SSH, you know, in whatever. So I'm curious if that's like a use case that's in scope for Oxide or is that? So again, not my area of expertise, but I will say a thing that I think is at least related. So another chip that we have that is using this little operating system in is called the root of trust. And this is actually interesting too, from like a, a longer term Steve career perspective, because also understanding these use cases completely changed my mind about a certain set of technologies. So like I'd always understood TPMs, uh, like trusted platform uh, modules and like that kind of DRM-ish stuff to be a like, it was a very like Stallman style understanding of like, this is an attack on the ability to do what I want with my own computer. And like, you know, these like software companies or like hardware companies are trying to lock me out of the hardware that I bought for evil money-making reasons. And like, that sucks. And like, that might be true in some senses and like on desktops or whatever, but like, eh. I've significantly softened it up because I, I realized being able to guarantee what software is running on your computer or what is not running on your computer is a very useful property. And so this is also part of the reason why it's like important that our code is like open sourced is that like our customers can actually like verify that like the, so like the, the TPM makes sure that like everything that happens on boot is running software that is signed by us. And so if they would try to replace the firmware, they would also need to change the like signing keys and like, I'm a super hand wave here because I don't really honestly know how any of that stuff works. But like, you know, there there is some sort of amount of checking that like on boot up, the hardware will double check. Like, am I running the firmware I'm supposed to be running? And if the answer is no, then it won't even start. 
And so that is my guess about how an attack like that would be prevented on Oxide Hardware. But yeah, the, the security stuff is not my particular personal strong point. So I may be wrong about that, but it's, it's at least a cool other thing about how this stuff works. And, and that like especially matters for things like cloud providers because like imagine that you're renting a couple racks in a colo that's in the middle of nowhere you don't have employees yeah. there regularly. You need right. to guarantee that like someone hasn't snuck into the data center and just like literally installed something else that you're like about to boot up, right? And so that's also a useful way of like you being able to yeah, like remotely verify that this computer is doing what it's supposed to do. For a certain definition of do what it's supposed to do, obviously it's not yeah. a panacea for, you know, fixing security issues, but it, it does prevent stuff like that, like a person in the data center plugging in a floppy disk. Obviously it's not a real thing, but like, you know, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. This, so. this um, automatic, unavoidable verification is like something that actually, weirdly, coincidentally, came up for me recently. Um, another subject that I'm curious to get your thoughts on, which is um, has to do with package management. Uh, so I've been working on this programming language, and long term, we plan on making a like sort of centralized package index and stuff like that, uh, like you'd see in like like you know Cargo um, and Rust or, or you know Ruby Gems and Ruby. But for now, we, we're kind of working on this like 80-20 solution where it's just based on like, give me a URL, I'll go download the thing for you. And then, you know, totally. that's, that's the end of it. One thing that's always bothered me about those systems in most languages is that let's say that I, and like this is, I'll use Rust, which I love as a programming language. So I'm not picking on Rust, but, um, and this is how it works in most of these languages. It's like, I'm, I put in a URL and it's like, cool, I'm going to go download this thing from this URL. Whatever's at that URL, that's what I'm putting on your system. And there might be behind the scenes some sort of like SHA checker, like a hash checker or something. Like I've heard like Go does this automatically for like arbitrary URLs to make sure that it's like what it was the first time it was downloaded. But of course, at that point, you've got a like centralized system again, which depending on your use case, maybe is not what you want. Like maybe you're trying to share something, you know, some package internally to your company and you don't want this URL to be automatically downloaded by some third-party server. And like, maybe, okay, maybe there's a way to opt out of it, yada, yada. But then of course you're opting out of it and now you don't get the SHA protection anymore. Hashing the contents, I'm saying SHA, but like whatever, hashing the contents, sure, verifying yeah. that the download matches the the hash. So I came up with a system, which we haven't rolled out yet, but um, but it's it's pretty simple, which is just the URL has to end in the hash of what you're downloading. So this has an upside and a downside. The downside is that the URLs, when you want to share things this way, look really ugly because they end in this gigantic hash. But the upside is that you don't have to worry that, for example, like you're getting it from this domain, maybe the domain lapses because the person who owned it stopped caring about it, and then somebody else takes it over and puts something malicious up there. You don't have to worry about, is this going to change and like break API compatibility? Also, we don't even have to like check on you know build like oh is there a new version out there it's like no it can't do that if it if it were different then the url would have to be different which is not an approach i've seen other package managers i don't know of any other package manager that's or, or any language or like package ecosystem that does it this way but it's not the type of thing that i would have guessed would be important to me when i was like starting out my career and getting into this stuff but now that i've seen all these like failure modes of like oh yeah people like actually want to do nefarious stuff, you know, in any way that they can over the internet. And like, this seems like a good way to defend against it. Yeah. I think the trick is like, to me, I guess I don't fully understand why, what is the mechanism to just give you a bad hash? Like if you're like, so I give you, I'm like, go down my package as a foo.com slash Steve's hash one, two, three, four, 
but like I give you the link for like three, four, five instead, and you still use it. You're still like in the same place, right? Like, oh, so so it just won't work. Like, so basically, so what happens is that it automatically whatever URL I'm given, it downloads. There's like a tarball, you know, at that URL, it downloads it, and then the first thing it does is it checks against the URL that it was given. Does the thing that I just downloaded like hash to that? And if not, I'm not going to unpack it. I'm not going to do. I'm just going to give you an error. So if the original author is malicious, all bets are off. Like we can't we can't prevent against that with software. Um, the the thing that we're trying to prevent against is that the original person who gave me the package, they posted it at a, at a URL. They posted legitimate stuff. It was trustworthy. But then later on, somehow that URL got compromised. Like either. Okay. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I was thinking of a broader lot. scope of problems. So yeah, totally. I think that makes sense. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I've just never heard anyone suggest it before. So yeah, I don't think there's yeah. like a reason why people haven't done that. I mean, I think, you know, we don't like Rust and Cargo default to like crates.io because like to prevent that stuff is a totally de- different way. But then yes. you have the centralization thing that you're talking about, which if you're trying to stay away from is like, yeah, totally. Well, I'm actually not trying to stay away from it. It's more just like, that's a big project that I don't want to do yet. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, like that's what I want to do next is like a real like crates.io style, like centralized thing. But I also know that there, I, I have heard community members in, in various communities say, I don't want a centralized thing. I, I want, and so my, my view is like, it's like, it's fine if we're going to give access to a decentralized thing, but I also still want a centralized thing because there's a ton of benefits to that. <laughs> yes. Most actual real users don't care about decentralized versus centralized yes. whatsoever. And the centralized system has so many convenience advantages that they would much prefer just to use it in the first place. And Absolutely. the people who want yeah. decentralized stuff are very, very loud, but that's like yeah. maybe me being a little cynical from <laughs> doing this for too long. But yeah, totally. Well, that's That's been my experience too, is that there's a very small, way less than 1%, I would say, of like users of the language, but very disproportionately vocal minority of people who want that, which I, I'm not saying like, I, I don't care about them. It's more just yeah, that like, totally. you know, I, I still want the centralized thing because then I'm in that 99 point whatever percent of people who prefers a centralized thing. But actually, so I want to go all the way back to the thing that made me think of package managers first in our conversation was not actually the security stuff, but actually it was, you mentioned like the hacker news people who would like to uh, post about Rust, like, oh, this is a bunch of web developers, you know, trying to, you know, get into systems level languages. Like, what do they know about that? And I I remember thinking like, well, they know what a package manager is. That's one thing they know. Like, I mean, like, what year is it? You still cannot just like, where is npm for C? Where is crates.io for C? Like, where, where are these things? Yeah. Like, <laughs> obviously, like, there's huge, every language that it comes out just gets one of these automatically, except for the languages that are from the 80s and earlier. And, and totally. there's just languages that are like extremely widely used. They're just like, anyone can do it, but nobody does. There's a really large culture clash because you're right that those systems like coalesced in the like 80s and 90s. And so like if you look at if you look at like a Linux distro, for example, like you can argue that that is the universal package manager for C, which is like, cool, I'm on Windows. That does not help me. It's like first, first of all thing. But like beyond that, they have built up all this infrastructure and stuff around the C compilation model. And right. like one of the big problems with things in in many directions is that like not all languages are compiled, let alone share the same like properties of compiling C code. And so like a way this manifests, for example, is when people talk about static versus dynamic linking, 
they're like, oh, but the problem with static linking is like, I don't know all the programs on my system that are like built, like OpenSSL has another vulnerability and I need to update it. Like even beyond the fact that some people just object to the idea of like recompiling more than one, like recompile OpenSSL versus all the programs that use it or whatever. Like that's a whole separate argument. But even then they're like, how do I know what programs even are on my system that have that dependency? Because like, I can't possibly know. And it's like much better if they're looking it up dynamically from the OS. And it's like, well, that's like a failure of your like operating system to like be recording that information. Like the build <laughs> systems, like cargo.lock, like you, if you have, if you're building all of these programs and you have it around, like you know, because you can look through every lock file and see which which programs have OpenSSL on them. And just like that's recorded in a convenient way in cargo system and is not in like a traditional package manager like situation. And so there's like, you know, those kinds of struggles too, where it's like some of these, yeah, properties for security or whatever things are like easier or harder in each of those different ways. Like many of those package managing systems can't handle multiple versions of a package being installed at the same time because like C doesn't have namespaces. So you get one big flat global namespace and that's like, that's what you got. And so there's like all sorts of weirdness to like even be able to make that work sometimes because it's like not a language construct. It's something you're laying on top of it. But that like is really easy in things like NPM and Cargo because there is a way to like scope things so you can have multiple versions of a package in your program even. And that's like not a problem. But like that's also not exclusively a like new system versus old system divide because like Ruby also like can't or at least when I used it anyway, maybe something has changed. I haven't paid that much attention to Ruby lately, but like you can't have multiple versions of a package in Bundler either, because like Ruby doesn't have that kind of namespacing when you like declare a module, it like reopens it. So if you'd be using two things named the same thing, you end up like running into that clash. And so it's like weirdly closer to C in that regard than it is to like Rust or NPM. And so you know you have these like, all these features where everybody has different sets of problems and they're all like overlapping, but there hasn't been a lot of there's less learning amongst those different communities than I would hope is the case, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I definitely buy that in terms of like, there's there's not that much, not as much learning as there could be, I guess. Like definitely, I mean, so RubyGems, I could be wrong, but I think RubyGems was like the second, uh, like after CPAN for Perl, it was like the second really big popular, like what we today think of as like a programming language specific. Yes. Like if you, if you go, I was about to say like, well, actually, but then you said popular. And so it's like, okay, that works. Cause CPAN is actually named after CTAN, which is for LaTeX right. Uh, packages. Right. <laughs> and so that was like the original one. And then like, yeah, yeah. you have like CPAN and then Ruby gems, obviously owes a big intellectual debt to, to CPAN and then NPM kind of like learned a lot from Ruby gems, but also had its own neat thing. And then cargo expressly like went after those. And so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So definitely it seems like there's there's like learning. But the thing that's weird to me is that like, and maybe this is out there and I just haven't heard of it because it's not widely used, which might just be for cultural reasons. But like, I haven't even heard of like a, an attempt. The closest attempt I've heard to having some semblance of like modern package management is like Zig wants to do like some sort of package management solution and Zig supports compiling C. So like right. that's that's the closest I've heard to like anyone even expressing like a, uh, an intent to build like a, a package management system for C or C++. Um, gotcha. There's definitely a bunch of them. Yeah, so, totally. Those, yeah. those do exist. The problem is actually a lack of standardization, a lack of everyone getting on board with using the same one. Okay, so, so, like, so it's, it's not that people haven't tried, it's that no one succeeded in like becoming the, the, the standard that like everybody... Yeah, did. well, 
there's like a really big advantage when you're building a new language and you don't have like we, so I'm very thankful that for uh, like the folks at Mozilla who decided to like invest in getting cargo written early, like pre rust 1.0, because they like knew that that's the only way to make this stuff good. Because like the yeah. problem is, is that, okay, you've written the perfect C package manager. It does everything great. It's like totally fine. Like it's, it's what everybody wants. Let's use it. Well, the problem is, is you have literally 50 years of programs that have their own custom bespoke build systems. Right. And now like to add those programs to your package system, you either need to do it yourself, which is effectively what a Linux distro is. So you have a maintainer who takes the upstream project and adapts it for your package manager, mm-hmm. or you ask the upstream to support your package manager. And then that means getting all of those people to like be willing to modify and support you upstream. And that's like a colossal task and communication that's just like basically not going to happen. And so like the biggest advantage of doing it in a new language and why they often operate so much more smoothly and like why there's been a lot of folks, including Microsoft, who have spent a lot of time and effort trying to get a C or C++ package manager to happen. But like the problem is, is that like you run into that fundamental problem of like, I need a ton of people to be willing to do the work of adapt, adapting upstream into my package management system, or I need to convince everyone to support it natively. And that can be really tough. And that flows out of the fact that there is sort of like a standard build process for all these new languages. And there just was not for C and C++ for an extremely long period of time. And so you just like, you're just, that's just a big, a big giant problem. Cool. Ah, okay. I didn't know about any of that context. So this this makes a lot more sense to me now. Like why why things would be the way they are is that it's it's not it's not so much. So I'd, I'd assumed apparently incorrectly that it was like a, mainly a cultural thing where it's just like oh we don't because I have seen some people say like that is also part of it. Yeah, like we don't need that or like you know the the best way to and I'm somewhat sympathetic to this too, but like I have heard just vendor everything. Just like if you have a dependency, just download it, put it in your source tree, and now you don't have to worry about what if the package repos down? You don't have to worry about what if the version changes? Am I, does everybody on the same version? It's like, no, all these problems are just solved, which I think is totally fair. Obviously it creates other problems, but it does legitimately sidestep a number of problems. And I think it's like, as a community, I think vendoring probably should not be looked down upon as, as much as I get the sense that it is. It's not necessarily, like, I think it's a totally reasonable, valid choice, even if it's not my usual default choice. Yeah, well, as always, like the best thing about packaging is that like we could literally talk about this for like two weeks straight because there's so yeah. many details that matter yeah. in different contexts. Absolutely. So like, for example, like one of the reasons why people often get very salty about vendoring is they've experienced situations in which, oh, well, I vendored that. Oh, well, there was a bug fix that I applied to the local copy. Uh, I sent it in upstream, it didn't get pulled in, or like, I don't have time, I'll send in a pull request next week, and then it doesn't actually happen. And then eventually your local vendored version diverges from upstream yep. significantly enough that now that you're like in a problem. And so like, as an example to like counter that is like, Cargo has a vendor subcommand that will vendor all your dependencies for you. So if you want to have all that code in your tree, you can, but it will also write out the hash, here we're back to hashes again, it'll run out the hash of the contents of all that stuff. And if you modify the vendored code, it'll go, nope, not compiling this. Don't modify the stuff that's in the vendored, the vendored area. And so that like that like can help, that feature can help the, uh, fight against that failure mode, for example. And so, you know, there's like a lot of, there's a lot of nuance to the vendoring thing. I also, it was, 
we argued about a lot in Ruby in various times too. Uh, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of pros and cons. And I think it's both, both ways are good and have their appropriate times and places, depending on what your goals are. It's just, there's like so many details, all the details matter. Yeah. The local patch thing reminds me of like going back to the open SSL thing. Like I know there's a big debate between uh, like static linking and dynamic linking. And whenever I hear someone talk about the, that use case of dynamic linking of like, I've got my server, it's running. There's an open SSL vulnerability and I want to patch my servers like as soon as possible with the new version of open SSL. I don't want to have to wait to recompile all of my dependencies, which may, you know, who knows how long they'll take and I'm vulnerable that whole time. Got it. Okay. Let's say we, we understood that's an open SSL issue. Now, like what, what's the second most thing that you're concerned about there? Not let's okay. Open SSL check. Got it. Yeah. Understood. <laughs> Next, what, what's a, what's one other example of something that you're really worried about that's not literally open SSL that you're worried about <laughs> that has those exact, right? I'm sure that like someone someone has one, like I, I'm sure they're out there, but like if you draw a graph of like, what is the concern? Is it really just dynamic linking exists for open SSL? Like, okay, not, not literally obviously, but like this use case of dynamic linking, is it literally just open SSL? And if so, okay, Rust TLS is a thing now and that compiles, there's like a C API for that. So like maybe there's another solution to this problem. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of, there are some other also relatively obscure cases that really matter if you're the person that's in the relatively obscure case, right? This kind of also goes back to the thing about like less than 1% of people being about decentralized stuff is like, that's totally cool. But like when you're in the 1%, like sucks for you basically, right? And so that's like always a thing to remember with these kind of like math-based arguments that I often make myself too, but it's like, it's important to remember briefly to have empathy for the people that are stuck in those crappy situations. As an example of another like thing I don't generally care about, but I have a lot of empathy for people being stuck in that is like, there's folks who they're in an old environment where they don't even have access to the, the code to compile the thing anymore. And so the only way you're ever getting an update is by, you know, using, changing out the dynamic library. And so that's like one example of a case is like, if you don't have the source code, but you still want that update to happen, then dynamic linking is a way to accomplish that, uh, that is like useful to people. And so even maybe it is still true that OpenSSL is the thing you're trying to dynamically link, like, okay, but like, there's also, you know, anything else you're trying to do if you're, you know, say maybe working in a regulated environment where you can't update anything on your computer except for you know serious security things and there's a serious security thing in your xml parser so you need to like swap that out but like the person who wrote that code left the company in 1992 and like no one knows how to build it anymore like you know right. like that kind of thing is like a thing that happens to people or at least i've heard that it happens to people it's never happened to me um <laughs> yeah I, I i totally buy that i i totally believe that that's like a legitimate use case and there but there is a question of like you know zooming out a bit like the reason that we th there is sort of a debate about dynamic versus static is that, you know, unfortunately, this is something where it's an ecosystem question, and you do actually like kind of need to pick one if you want to get all the benefits of like having it one way or the other. So, like, yeah, on the one hand, it does suck if you're in it, like one of the very few people where it's like, yeah, I don't have access to the source code. Dynamic linking is all I have. Please don't take that ecosystem away from me. But on the other hand, it's like. Are we going to say that we're going to like hold up progress on all the benefits that everybody else could get like indefinitely because like some people are in this like like at some point there's value to saying we don't support COBOL anymore like it's it's yeah. been long enough like this this is like an anchor around our neck we need to move on and static versus dynamic linking to me like from based on the arguments that I've heard seems like that it falls in that category where it's like yes there are totally legitimate use cases but like it's not worth it. It's not, it's not worth the cost to keep like supporting them indefinitely. Yeah. It, it's also just like an example of 
centering a particular language's needs over others. If you're trying to truly like a lot of people are like, why don't we have the one package manager to like rule them all? Oh, and it's no. like, well, <laughs> what does it's like what does dynamic linking mean in the context of Ruby or JavaScript? Yeah. Like that's like a right. that's like a specific compiled language concept that's like totally irrelevant for so like if I'm packaging a Ruby application for Debian, why am I breaking every gem into its own package? Because right. In C, those need to be dynamically linked for that update. That's like not even possible in Ruby. So like, what's what's the well, like, you know, and like, okay, et, so et cetera. And like, I mean, you can argue that in Ruby, you load the modules at runtime anyway, and it's the same thing as dynamically. All of Ruby is dynamically linked or whatever. But just like even talking about it in that way is like using the language of the C stuff to like do other, you know, kind of like things, et cetera. And so that's a tricky part about all this. Yeah, and, and I mean, like, there, I, I do want to draw a distinction. When I'm talking about dynamic linking in this context, I specifically mean as like the foundation for your package management solution. Yeah, absolutely. As opposed to like, like dynamic, like DL opens great. Like having the concept of dynamically linked things is sweet. And like, actually, it's funny. Like Ruby, this specifically has come up for me recently because one of the things we're looking into at work, um, and we we can sort of like at the like proof of concept stage, but basically like um, is the ability to call uh, rock code from Ruby. And the way that we do this, like, as I discovered, uh, and now we have an example in the rock repo, is, is it's like, yeah, you can just, in Ruby, you can just like require a, a, a dynamically linked library. And, and it's like a, like compiled C code, or in our case, like compiled rock code. And Ruby can just call that. And I was like, wow, I didn't know you could do that. That's like really simple and straightforward. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty sweet. So like, so now we have this little like hello world where you're just like inside Ruby and you call a rock function, give it a string and it does something to the string and gives you back, you know, something else. And it just works using dynamic libraries. So I'm like, hey, hey, dynamic linking for that. Like, awesome. Great. Love it. Plugins, you know, also great use case. But that doesn't mean I want to do all my packages that way. <laughs> totally. So have you gotten to do any like web dev stuff at Oxide or are you even interested in that? Or are you just kind of like, I want to get as low level like OS? Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't know when I joined I was like I either want to work on the website or I want to work on the embedded stuff and Brian encouraged me to work on the embedded stuff and so I've been sticking to that area I haven't done any actual web dev work at Oxide and I interested in a certain sense but also like I don't know I like not having all those problems anymore um, <laughs> it's like there's certain ways in which there's a simplicity to embedded stuff that ironically, I think in many ways is much easier than web development. One of my yeah. friends in college used to actually say this. He's like, you could like, when I write assembly code, I know what's running on the CPU. It's my assembly code, but yeah. you like bundle up a programming language and put it in a markup language and then ship it to a different computer on the <laughs> other side of the planet and then have to have that run. Like that's actually much more complicated. Like I'll stick with my assembly code. Like I'm, I'm yeah. more interested in that than web development. And there's some truth to that in that like, you know, people like the, the, the same people who would like tut tut how web development isn't real development, like haven't had to like fight Webpack and like that takes a lot of expertise, <laughs> you know, and like time and effort. Yeah. And like, there's a lot of, we're dealing with like, I mean, we're sort of past the era of like browser quirks anymore, but like back whenever I, that was like what I was doing, you oh, know, yeah. dealing with like four or five different browsers and testing everything and making sure you remembered what APIs worked and where and not didn't and like all that stuff. Like, that's a lot of work and takes a lot of expertise. And so, you know, things are like better on that specific front these days, but like, I'm, I'm happy to like not have those problems anymore. So yeah, totally. Like, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I definitely, um, when I started working on rock full-time, I, I remember thinking like, okay, so I'm, I'm like not going to be doing web development full-time for the first time in my career. Wow. And, and I was kind of like retrospecting on like, what's different in, in terms of like the day-to-day -day like programming experience. And the thing that came to mind is it's like, it's, it's kind of like now 
I'm not so much dealing with browser nonsense anymore. I'm dealing with like Intel's nonsense. And like, there's sure. still plenty of like, you know, oh, yeah. nonsense to go around. Anyone but, who's read a data sheet knows that there is a lot of nonsense in the embedded world as well. Yeah, or totally. like the CAVI. It's like, why is this this way? Like, yeah. but, but at the same time, there's definitely an element of it's kind of refreshing because I don't have any scars in this area. I'm not, oh God, this again. <laughs> like, let's, let's stay away from that rabbit hole. Like, oh, there's this hole here. Let's see where this leads, you know? And then someone's like, oh, you don't know what you just stepped into. Yeah. Those problems are fresh problems to me, not old problems. Right. And web development problems are old problems, so they're like less right. interested. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like kind of, and also there's there's an element that I've discovered that's like it's pretty rewarding to see something that like to like pull back the curtain on something that previously like I always knew was there, but I didn't know what was behind the curtain. It was like, oh, okay, I, I know that like. I mean, in your case, it's like, I, I, I know conceptually that operating systems exist and I know certain facts about them and I know like how to like design certain things around them. But like, I don't actually know like what code looks like to like implement interrupts, you know, like things yeah. like that. I, I, I have no idea. And then similarly, like with, with compilers, it's like, I, I, yeah. As I say, interestingly enough, I think interrupts are a fantastic example of how web developers often can find it easier to learn low-level programming because like if you've written a callback before, you fundamentally know how interrupts work and like what they are. And so it's yeah. like the hardware calling your call, but you register a callback with the hardware. And when an event happens, it calls your callback. Like that's, that's what's going on. And that's like right. very intuitive to web developers, but like takes a lot of people, like when they're learning that like low level stuff for the first time, are like interrupts are weird. Cause they like, don't execute your code in order. And it's like, I've been doing that for a long time in web development. Oh, and yeah. so like, Interesting. like there's, there's, there's some ways in which if you like look at it from a slightly different perspective or like, don't assume that low level stuff is harder or more complicated, or you need to know more things or have more experience. Like there's some things in which like learning web development first makes learning embedded development easier later. Um, like I truly believe that's the case. Um, yeah, I, so. I, I buy that. I, I remember the first time and it was like way later in life, like after I'd been a web developer for a long time, um, that, yeah, that I, that I learned about how to install a signal handler. It's like, I was like, okay, this is going to be something really complicated and really nasty and weird and hackish. And like, I'm ready to do a bunch of pointer arithmetic or something. And it's like, all right, you got to tell me what's the function you want to run when the, when the signal happens, like, okay, here it is. Like, all right, when the signal happens, I'm going to call that function. Like, oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> totally. That wasn't when, bad. When I, when I started Oxide, I was exactly this. It was like, I knew I was joining, but I didn't know if I was doing the better stuff or the web stuff. And I was talking to Brian about it. He's like, you know, he got a job at Sun right out of college. And they put him like on the kernel team. And so it's yeah. like day one and they're like, go do this thing in the kernel. And he's like, I don't know if I can do this. And what his boss at the time told him and then what he told me is like, listen, like OS stuff and embedded stuff is data structures and algorithms. You've used data structures and algorithms before. These may be slightly different data structures and algorithms than the ones you're used to. But like, it's not actually magic. Like an OS right, is right, just yeah. a program and like maybe the APIs are unusual, but like you've learned new APIs before. Like it's, it's just like, don't, don't think of it as something mystical and wonderful. Think of it as like, I'm writing a program today and like, that's just the truth. And that's exactly what I found every time I've gone into a new domain is that like, you know, nope. just remind, reminding myself like, yeah, I don't have this expertise, but I've gained expertise before in other domains. And like, you know, there'll be some weirdness, but there's always some weirdness. But like, you know, at the end of the day, I know how to write code and it's still just code. Um, so I think it's like a very helpful perspective to have and something I've tried to like share with a lot of people who've shown like some interest in like getting into this and, you know, like they, they harm themselves by assuming it's going to be beyond their ability before they even give it a shot. And like, I definitely think it's the kind of thing that if you want to do, you can definitely do it. 
I 100% have had that same experience with compilers where it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's like, it's just a program. Like it's a program, yes, that like spits out other programs, but like the way that it does that is like you can imagine like, you know, a transpiler. It's like, okay, what, what are you trying to do? Well, I'm trying to spit out JavaScript code if I'm compiled to JS or something like that. Well, how do you do that? Well, okay, you make strings, like strings that have JavaScript code in them. Okay, well, yeah. if you're not transpiling to another like language and you're not spitting out source code, it's still most of the compiler is exactly the same, except that like instead of spitting out source code that's like, you know, UTF-8 strings, instead you're spitting out like ones and zeros that have special meaning to the hardware. And it's like, a re- it's like, think of it as like a really weird syntax where like you have yeah. to go look up, you know, in these like ancient manuals, like, okay, if you want to do addition, here's the bytes that you put in this order. It's like, that's it. And, and, but guess what? There's probably a library to do that for you. You probably don't have to like do all that yourself <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unless you're like us and you're weird and you're like actually making your own backend because LLVM slow and we don't want to only go through LLVM, but yeah fundamentally it still just feels like programming it's just like yeah like you said it's a different expertise it's like like with signal handlers i remember reading that like okay there's some things you know uh, the api is simple like okay give me a function i'll call it but there's like rules where it's like when yeah, you're inside yeah. a signal handler like, <laughs> you can't do all the stuff you would normally do but not like, only are there are rules, there are consequences. Right. Yeah. Like, the problem yeah. is not there are rules. The problem is there is consequences for yeah. not following the rules. Very well. Yeah, good point. <laughs> but similarly, it's like, it reminds me of in the browser, like there are some things it's like, yeah, this is like this API and this is how it works. And then you're like trying, like it doesn't work. And like, why didn't it work? And it's like, oh, there's this like security rules that say like, actually this can only be run from within this certain type of click handler because people used to abuse this. And like, now we want to make sure there's like user intent before we do this thing. And and like, you know, so again, there's a simple API, but there's expertise there where like, if I didn't, if I hadn't, fortunately, like pretty much every tutorial I've read on signal handlers mentions this and is yeah. like, by the way, <laughs> if they're not just like, here it is. End of story. Go have fun. Yeah. yeah. Thankfully. But yeah, like there's a lot of stuff like that to learn. And like, maybe if you're used to it, it's either boring or like annoying, but like, if it's new, it's like, whoa, that's like, why is it that way? You know, like, what, why are there these rules? Why are there these consequences if I don't follow the rules, et cetera? And then like, you know, that, that, that can be a fun rabbit hole to go down, I think. Definitely. I was doing some ruminating last night on, on old Ruby days because of why the lucky stiff came back into oh, yeah. my brain yesterday. Uh, so maybe just kind of fun in terms of like, while you're building this programming language, another thing to like think about that I think is really interesting is that like, uh, I was, I got a little bit of pushback for this on Twitter yesterday, but I was like, why I'm sort of sad that Rust didn't have like a weird moment like Ruby did. And then mm. many people who are doing good, weird stuff in Rust were like, what about me? And I'm like, yeah, I know you're great, but like, it's not like sort of what I mean. And I think it's kind of interesting about like, as languages develop and what their like goals are and like what kind of things that you go to accomplish, like how that can work. And like, I feel, I feel like a lot of the kind of like art is code and like, you know, this is like uh like whimsical, that stuff was like able to exist in this like limited time in the Ruby world because Ruby had this like weird trajectory. It's not that weird. It's, it's, I don't think it's possible anymore, but it's often the way things used to work in the old days is like someone would make a programming language and then like 10 years would go by and then all of a sudden people would start using language for real things. And then it would like blow up and become like an important thing. And like, that's, that's like not, really the way that new languages kind of work like the social scene and like the internet and like a lot of stuff has changed since like the 80s but it's like you know ruby was made in 1995 but didn't really blow up until 2006 when like rails happened at least outside of japan anyway obviously uh and so like 
that lag let this sort of like time where people were using the language for the sake of using it and not for like getting a job or making money or even trying to like worry, is this language going to like persist? Like it's in the nineties, nobody was like worried about if the language was dead or not. Like that wasn't like a discussion that we had, you know, but like now everybody's like really concerned about like using tools that nobody else uses anymore. And so I think it's kind of interesting because I think for a long time with Rust, we kind of like implicitly knew that like at some point Mozilla would get bored and stop funding it. And so uh-huh. like this had better become like a if this is a thing we want to use for like careers and work and all that stuff, like we need to like work towards getting that to like happen and having Rust be used by companies and like all this like serious stuff. And so I feel like that Rust never got to have that kind of like interesting lag period where no one used it except because they wanted to. Mm. Obviously that was true with 4.1.0 in like some ways, obviously, but like not to the same degree as a lot of what, like what happens like with Ruby basically. And so I don't know if I have like a point or if I even think that's accurate or whatever, but that's like a thing that's been running on my mind is like, as cause like there's a big question of like, can you bootstrap a programming language without, Commercial support is like how most people would phrase it, but I just think like having at least one full-time person work on it, regardless of whether it's like for commerce reasons or Patreon or like whatever else, uh, like, is that even feasible anymore? Because that's like what basically happened with a lot of those like 80s and 90s vintage languages is that somebody like... You know, Ramses made PHP because he wanted a website, you know, with some dynamics right, yeah. in it, and then like you know, eventually it like runs half the internet or whatever. And so, yeah. uh, you know, we don't like those stories don't exist in the same way. Almost every language that's kind of like broken out of the not mega popular, but like po- popular enough to be considered like a a thing that is used by big important people for big important things have all like had some degree of like monetary backing for a significant period of time in the development process. And so the last example I can, the most recent example I can think of that, that doesn't fit that mold would be CoffeeScript, which was basically, as I understand it, like just Jeremy Ashkenis in his spare time. And I don't think anyone ever got paid to work on it full time, as far as I know. And it was definitely used. I remember at one point it was like the 11th most popular language on GitHub, like the 11th most used. That, That was like the peak of its popularity. But I think an important note there is like the, the scope of the project, like CoffeeScript right. was like really just like, we don't do any type checking. We don't do any package management. All we do is like parse some code and then spit out some JavaScript code. That's like pretty similar structurally to what you, you put in. It's, it's yeah. almost like a, like a macro system or like some syntax sugar on top of JavaScript, which is all totally. it was ever designed to be. Yeah. Yeah. But like, if you compare that to something like Rust or even like Rock, which is like way smaller in scope than Rust, I always intended for Rock to be something that I would just do in my spare time and hopefully other people would join in. But like now we have like two full-time and and change people like working on it. And that was never something I thought was going to happen like like pre 1.0, like maybe someday yeah, yeah. we got really successful. But like, so the fact that we, we've ended up in this spot is pretty wild to me. But But now that I've seen it, I'm like, I don't know what I was thinking. Like that was like a really not just ambitious, but like probably it was going to take a bazillion years to like launch anything useful at that pace. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a really similar kind of like thing where when I grew up, a text adventure was like an acceptable video game. And so I could like write one of those. And so it was like, cool. Like I want to, you know, make that happen. But like now the baseline is like, you know, Fortnite or Call of Duty. <laughs> right. And like, those are like multi-million, hundreds of millions of dollars with gigantic teams that like take, for, you know, years of full-time work to like build one of those things. It's like not feasible for an individual to ever produce 
Modern Warfare 2. Like, it's just, like, not actually possible. And so it's kind of the same thing with programming languages is, like, sort of, like, what's in scope for a language or, like, what the baseline requirements are for, like, someone to consider using it for, like, a real, quote-unquote, like, project is just, like, so much work that it doesn't matter how smart you are. There's just, like, not enough hours in the day to, like, do it without you know, having multiple full-time people to like truly get a whole gigantic thing off the ground. That's tough. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, uh, I, going back to why the lucky stiff, like I wasn't, I, I never used Ruby until after that was like a, a memory for most people. Uh-huh. But I definitely look on it as like as something, at least as an outsider, where I, it looks like something desirable. It's like, this is cool. Like, I'm, I'm glad that this happened. Like, even though I wasn't around for it and like, I wish it happened more. So I wonder if, I don't know, are those things mutually exclusive? Like if you have the like corporate backing and you have, or just like you have full-time backing, right? Like Zig is not corporate backed, but it is, it's like a lot of small donors. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, But like, you know, does that preclude, uh, like, because it's, you know, intended to be used for serious things, does that mean that nobody's going to come along and make a weird, you know, poignant guide to Zig? I have no idea, but I hope somebody does. I hope somebody does for rock and. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I definitely don't think it's, mutually exclusive but i do think there's like a tension there and like oftentimes tension is what makes good art so you know maybe like i'm not that person so i can't you know say why or why not that's like not happening in different places and maybe somebody will churn out an amazing programming language that's got a full debugger and language server implementation and package manager and they'll do it all in their spare time and they'll be like ah steve you're wrong and like that's great uh but like you know it feels like that is the case right now not saying it's an iron law of the universe or anything for sure yeah well, it would certainly take them a while. I can say that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. This has been great. Yeah. Talked totally. about a bunch it's of stuff, time. like Rust stuff, Ruby stuff, art. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This is really fun. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> awesome.